Are any ideas truly original? Do you own your own ideas? Let's take a look at IP and all that's involved with it in today's episode of Liberty After Dark. Hello, everybody. It has been a few weeks now. Uh, not too terribly long. Better than last time, anyways. I hope everybody has had a fantastic time while I have been away doing, uh, you know, hiding in my hole, I guess, while the whole world continues to freak about COVID, which we're going to continue not talking about today because I am absolutely sick of it. It's been what, like nine months now, something like that, since all this rigmarole really kicked off. Uh, yeah, but today I wanted to talk about something that's more kind of personally affected me and I guess more so people around me and the media that I consume and the things I like to enjoy in my free time and all of that wraps in to IP. But first off, just for a quick little housekeeping thing like we usually do at the beginning of the show. Uh, first off, I just wanted to say thank you all for continuing to support the podcast as uh, you know we go through these years now. I mean, we're approaching on two years, which is crazy to think about. And we're still going strong and we still get viewers and listeners and the YouTubes or, you know, YouTube. So that's always fun and uh, super glad that you guys are, are out there supporting that. And I just want to take a, a minute to say thank you. Uh, also, um, apparently my last episode was pretty well received by people who listen to it and they want to hear more stuff like that. Uh, I don't know particularly or exactly what it was. So just know that I hear y'all's comments and uh, we'll look forward to producing content and more in that style of uh, kind of looking retrospectively at discussions that I've had and insights that I've gained, etc. as we go forward. Uh, that's pretty much it. I just wanted to get those things out there before we got rolling. So IP, right? This all really started for me a few weeks ago now. When I was listening to uh, one of the Twitch streamers that I listen to while I work, uh, they were playing some games and they were talking about how a bunch of the people they knew were going to get DMCA'd if they didn't take down a bunch of their old videos that had copyrighted music on it. And of course, this piqued my interest immediately because any sort of controversy is going to pique my interest in these kinds of things. But uh, I, I had to take kind of a moment and, and I listen to everything that they were saying and the points that they were making for and against each side. And it was really interesting to see this argument from someone who wasn't in the Liberty space, but actually really cared, I guess, uh, who felt like they had a, a genuine stake in the argument. A lot of times you hear people who either like amateur songwriters, or you hear people who don't do any sort of creative work, giving statements on IP, even those of us who are in the anarcho-capitalist voluntarist communities uh, a lot of us aren't necessarily creators that are holding IPs that need maintaining, that need legal protections to keep your rights to them, quote unquote rights. We'll get to that more in a minute. And it was, it, like I said, it was interesting. Uh, and specifically, they were talking about how using the music doesn't really penalize the person who produced it. Or I guess I should say one side was. Uh, using the per the music doesn't penalize the person who used it. Uh, someone who comes to Twitch to watch someone play video games isn't going to buy the newest Kanye album 
or if they were, they would have already done it. And that really wouldn't have any bearing on whether or not they would have made that purchase listening to that music in that moment or not. If anything, it probably is just free advertising, right? That they don't have to pay for that streamer to play their music on their stream. The other side of the argument was that they were stealing the creative assets of whatever artists they were playing the music of, or if it was the case of, say, someone was DMCAing an entire game, saying that they didn't have the rights to play it because they were infringing on copyright law and not paying proper licensing fees, that that was also just stealing their copyrighted work, which is, you know, immoral, I suppose, is, would be their argument, or at the bare minimum, illegal, right? And then, kind of out of nowhere, uh, for those of you who don't know, I have a guilty passion, and that's uh, Super Smash Brothers. I know, super embarrassing. Uh, it's, I, I can't explain it. I have tons of fun playing that game. It's one of the games that I put the most time into when I do get a chance to game, uh, especially if none of my friends are available, I'll play a lot of that. And, uh, they just went through a big fiasco with Nintendo where an event that they were putting on, uh, to, you know, run a tournament for the community, uh, online was using a modded version of their software and they shut the whole event down issued a cease and desist, said, you can't do that. This is RIP. We have the right to stop you all from doing this. And I think it was this, really, this particular instance that made me want to make this episode because I felt like having all these things so close together really brings copyright into the spotlight. And if you, you know, don't follow gaming or anything and it's not really relevant to you or you don't care, these are just really uh, instigators for the topic for me, not so much going to be the focal point of it. Really, I'll mention them in passing as we go forward just so that we have a reference point. But just so you know, we have the DMCA claims against music, which includes video game music and music from artists outside of the industry. And we also have the cease and desists from Nintendo on these people trying to organize an event that uses a piece of modded software, which is completely legal under US law. But we'll get into that a little bit more, but probably not too much because we don't really care a whole lot about law here. Um, <laughs> so now that we've set up this framework, right, it's like, what is intellectual property to begin with? And intellectual property has a very rigorous legal framework that has a ton of reference this case, this case, and this case, and you can get a general idea of what intellectual property is and isn't. There are a lot of exceptions to the rules, but generally speaking, it is any sort of work that exists as an idea or a concept that you then create and sell, and you have a continuing interest in the property, right? So that's an important part also that I think we should mention. But uh, that was at least more so the original intent of it. We can talk about how intellectual property law has been completely manipulated. But again, I don't really care about law. Disney sucks. But whenever you look at that idea, it's, it's really easy for people to say like, oh, well, what's wrong with that? Right? Like if people come up with something, they deserve to be able to produce that content and make their money off of it and not have to worry about someone coming in and stealing it. Right? But we have to go back another layer, right? So we have to peel this back. Like we've defined quote unquote intellectual property as, as someone might, a layman per se might call it. This is not like the legal definition of intellectual property, but we have to come back to what our definition of property is, right? And one of the attributes of property in anarcho-capitalist libertarian 
circles is that scarcity begets property, right? So a more simple way of putting that would be if there isn't any scarcity to the item, there's no necessity for ownership to begin with, right? So if I own a car, for example, it is an inherently scarce object. There are only so many cars. There's only so much material by which you can make those cars. There's only so many factories you can produce these cars in, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things are owned by people because they are scarce. There's a limit to them. And if we take a second and look at this from the context of intellectual property, we notice that intellectual property isn't scarce right? There's nothing scarce about intellectual property. It's just an idea and ideas are infinitely replicable. Everything we have today is some derivation of a previously existing idea or just a continuation off of existing ideas. Everything that you have learned or I have learned throughout the process of making this podcast has been copied from one brain, whether to a piece of paper to my brain or to another brain or from a video to a brain. These, these things are not scarce, right? Ideas are cheap. It's the assets that you put the ideas into that are property, right? So if you make, let's take this as the example of like a software engineer. If you make a piece of software and you sell that software on a disc to a company and you say, okay, here is your disc, right? And they take that disc and they buy it from you. That disc is now their property. The data on it is unsubstantial. Because it is infinitely replicable, right? The data on the disk is like the idea. The disk is the property, right? And the particular etching of the disk, et cetera, you could say is an attribute of the property, which I guess you could make it to a claim that says this disk with this particular etching is my property. Therefore, I own the etching, et cetera. I mean, so you could make a claim that if someone defaces a disk, you know, they've damaged your property without going too far down that rabbit hole. If you were to just sell someone a snippet of code, for example, and they copied it and gave it to their buddy and you said, hey, you can't do that. That's stealing. There's nothing stealing about them copying it. Or if the company decided to take your disk and make a whole bunch of copies of it so they could give it out to all of their employees, or they wanted to put it on flash drives and upload it to the internet for everybody to access because who uses disks in 2020, am I right? Then at that point, they have total access to do whatever they want with all those nebulous combinations of ones and zeros because there's nothing scarce about them. And because of this, intellectual property cannot fall under the definition of libertarian property, of the correct, honestly, definition of property. And a lot of people don't like to hear this. I think it's kind of intuitive if you take a step back and you look at it, if you strum something on a guitar, there's nothing scarce about the pattern by which you are creating this song on a guitar. Just because the riff is particularly catchy doesn't necessarily mean that it happens to be suddenly property because, oh, people like this and I can sell these strums on a guitar recorded for money. That doesn't mean that therefore the strums on the guitar in that pattern are yours forever. That's not how this works, right? You own your creation, as far as it is a physical piece of property by which you can sell and distribute. Now, there's nothing saying that you can't claim you were the one to make that sweet guitar lick that someone used in their song, or that you were the person who created that software that everybody is using, and you'd like some compensation in return. There's nothing saying you can't do that, but at the same time, there's nothing stopping you 
Uh, more pertinently and to the point, it's not a NAP violation to violate the majority. I'd say, actually, I'm just going to go ahead and say all until someone shows me an example where it's not of intellectual property. If you were an amateur filmmaker and you wanted to go out and redo the Star Wars prequels because you thought they sucked so much that you and your buddies could do it better and you wanted to use his universe, right? Of course, Disney would come in and say, hell no, you cannot use the Star Wars universe. We own this and we have rigged pro uh, intellectual property law to the point that you can't use it because we own it for a billion years or whatever they've decided is long enough for them to make their money on it now. Uh, there's there's no ethical claim. There's no consistent claim. There's no claim that is universalizable as far as a definition of property that would allow them to stop whatever you're doing without some kind of monolithic power structure that exists to oppress you and to keep those with the money and power. I think the easiest way to look at this is to ask who is harmed, right? If someone steals your car, that's a tangible loss of assets. You are unable to go to work, etc. The list is practically endless. Cars are necessary for modern American life. I think we can all agree with that. If someone copies a program on your hard drive, who is harmed, right? Whenever we talk about these things as ethical violations, right, or ethical wrongdoings, we can usually trace them back to principles, mainly the non-aggression principle, right? If you wanted to look at it from that perspective, what does the NAP say about stealing property and why does it say that? Probably more importantly, obviously property is protected under the non-aggression principle that we've talked about this probably dozens of times, at least on the show. And the reason that it's on there is because it is inherently scarce and because you already made your monetary transaction or put the work in to create or homestead, etc. Again, lots of ways you can accrue property. But uh, the, the primary reason is that someone taking that property from you is a direct affront to you and your personage. It's a very easy link to make. If someone steals your wallet, that's a that's a very easy connection to make. They're like, yeah, this is this is theft. Now, if you steal, quote unquote, the Star Wars cinematic universe for your film, or you steal this programmer's code to distribute to other members of your company without their permission, who's being harmed directly? No one, right? Now, hold on. I hear you cry. Hey, he's losing out on money he could have possibly made. True. That's very true, right? This person could have made a bunch more money selling this program, or Disney could have made a bunch of money by having forced you to license out the rights to the Star Wars cinematic universe, right? These are things that definitely 100% could have made them more money. But we don't make ethical claims based off of potentialities, right? For some of you, this kind of may be an untasteful idea, especially, you know, I see this a lot in like the uh, abortion argument. I'm not particularly going to take a side in this episode, but you'll see a lot of people making claims towards the potentiality of something like if if uninhibited from its current path, this would happen. Right. Which even really isn't a good comparison, because in this case, if nothing else influences the current path of this creator. There's no money coming in because it requires the interaction of other people to come in and purchase it, right? 
to give one more analogy before really moving on from this idea, uh, let's take the example of someone trashes your car, right? And it was like a rust bucket sitting out in front of your yard. It's still your property, right? Despite the fact that it's, you know, a worthless Pontiac GTO that's been sitting out there for 20 years and hasn't turned over and probably is completely seized and would need way more money than it's worth. But uh, you had plans to rebuild it. So when you go to seek restitutions, you don't seek restitutions for the damages to the POS out in your front yard. You seek restitution for the damages of what it could have been. That that Pontiac GTO could have been the sweetest ride you've ever seen in your entire life, baby. Let me tell you what, right? No one is going to take you seriously in that regard. There, no one is going to say like, yes, that's a good argument. We, we should make sure that the damages for this restitution cover what the value of this Pontiac GTO could have been, right? If, if it was completely restored or whatever. And even then, once again, we, we've come into the situation where making an argument with physical property is more difficult than with any sort of intellectual property, because at least at that point, you could say you there's some kind of tangible physical improvement to it that is worth something, right? It's if those upgrades would be scarce, right? It's still a terrible argument, but at least you have some kind of no, you you don't. But at least it's it's still more relevant than intellectual property, right? It's, it's the point that I'm trying to make here, okay? So to bring all of this full circle, let's look at the Twitch DMCA claims again. So I'm going to pretend that I'm going to make something up because I don't have it directly in front of me. But just to work through the idea here, because it doesn't matter who it is. Let's say whatever record label Kanye West is under or owns. I don't know. I think he owns his own at this point, but I don't know if he's signed directly with them or what. But let's say they issued a bunch of DMCA's to Twitch for their music appearing on people's streams, right? What claim do they have to the particular sound waves coming out of that person's speaker? Because that is what they are making a claim to. It's not the digital copy even that the person is playing. Because most of the time, these people that are playing these songs accrued them via legal means through like Spotify or YouTube or some other method like that. And then they're playing them on, on their streams, right? So if we really draw this out, that's what they're making the property claim to. They're saying, no, 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 no. You can't do this because we own the specific vibrating pattern of your speakers that is coming out and hitting your eardrums, vibrating through the airwaves, coming out and hitting your eardrums, and you duplicating that is stealing because we said so. Right? I mean, seriously, like if we take everything that we've set up to this point and we come back to where we are now, this is where we're at. The only claim that they can make towards any sort of property is that the person watching the stream is getting this song sent to them through what they deemed an illegitimate method because that person is distributing the song, right? Which means that they believe that they own every single reverberation of your speakers that happens to be in the pattern of a Kanye West song, which is preposterous when you dissect it from this angle. Let's go back and look at the Nintendo example. So these people took a piece of Nintendo software, which can be accrued legally, made some minor modifications using another program to allow them to play online, 
And Nintendo said, you can't do that because that's our intellectual property and we own every single variation of zeros and ones that happens to be in this particular pattern. And anybody that sees them or plays them in this particular pattern uh, has to pay a licensing fee or properly purchase an unpurchasable copy of this game from us. And I think once it's it's now, it's once you've peeled back all of the layers of intellectual property, if you've never really looked at this before very critically like i i before this never haven't really taken a deep dive into the realm of intellectual property and all of the great writing that there is out there on this topic but it really is is a very simple linear rationalization of what is property and is this property and if it isn't what are they trying to make a claim of property to right and all of these things fundamentally come down to patterns, right? In in essence, in modern copyright law, now this would never fly, but let's say, you know, someone came up with like the Fibonacci sequence or something and they they copyrighted it. They were like, "Oh, this pattern of numbers is mine. I f- discovered it. It's it's mine now," right? Whatever. Let's pretend that flies. Then every instance of that pattern henceforth would be that person's property and every replication of that pattern without that person's permission and and slash or compensation, which probably would you know involve compensation to some point, would be their property, which is completely ridiculous. So and you can extrapolate this out as far as you go because patterns exist everywhere, right? And I chose the Fibonacci sequence for a reason. If you decided that, okay, well, we've copyrighted this. Right. And so now this is ours and every single seek every anything that uses this sequence is now our property because we've made a claim to that pattern. So like you've, you've probably seen the images of the rose petal that matches up with the Fibonacci sequence spirals and maybe you haven't or like the, the snail shell and stuff like that. It's like, oh, well, now we own all these things. Or another extreme example, like the guitar riff, right? This has actually happened in U.S. courts where single riffs or or like three-note combinations or a, a key has been taken as, oh, well, I, I made a song in this and I copyrighted it, so that's mine now, so you can't use it, right? Which these are all examples of, of things that have actually come up in copyright courts, like in the actual system designed to protect the integrity of these things. And that if that doesn't demonstrate to you that there's something horribly wrong with the existing law at the minimum, forget the idea of intellectual property, but at least the existing law, I don't know what will. And to kind of top all of this off and drop my last bomb on, on this particular topic, even though I, for a long time now, have said intellectual property isn't legitimate, I think the rationalization is pretty clear without really taking a super deep dive into it, there was always one space that I granted a certain amount of clemency to on this regard because I love it so much and I think it's such an incredible thing, and that's cryptocurrency, right? So this comes back to the example of the programmer. Now, don't don't click off the video. Don't go write an angry comment or, or or put a one star on the review just yet. Give me a second to make this argument, and then you could do what you want from there. Just like the example of the programmer, all a cryptocurrency is is a combination of ones and zeros that people have determined is worth trading goods for, or at least other forms of currency in most cases of cryptocurrency. But... 
That's all it is, right? There's there's no more to it than that. And we can talk about all the great things. And trust me, I, I think there's a lot of great things to cryptocurrency. But at the end of the day, it falls under the exact same spectrum of non-property as any other idea or combination or pattern of ones and zeros out there in the universe. If we're going to say that movies, music, video games, whatever you like is not intellectual property, then anything else that falls under that same sphere of existing item is also not property. <laughs> and, and, you know, this was this was kind of a hard pill for me to swallow because it's scary to think about a world where it isn't property and there isn't a possible nap ramification for someone, again, quote unquote, stealing because they don't have a better word for it, your cryptocurrency. But my personal feelings on the matter don't change the ethics of the situation. It falls under the exact same category as all of the rest of these things. Now, there is a certain artificial scarcity put on cryptocurrencies. Uh, they're designed so that they aren't replicable to a certain point in a lot of cases, or they're only divisible to a certain amount. So there isn't like a theoretical infinite number. But if someone were to crack that for whatever reason or however they did so and changed it to where they made a billion bitcoins for themselves. I mean, sure, everybody else could say, okay, well, these bitcoins with these markers, because you can track a lot of these things nowadays, are not real bitcoins and aren't allowed to be used in transactions. And that's also fine because what the person copied and, and duplicated and made a billion of is also not property. So there's nothing stopping you from quote unquote devaluing them or or eliminating them or whatever it may be or deleting them as they they come in and out of wallet transactions or however you know the system would deal with it right so for the exact same reason that cryptocurrency isn't property you could stop someone from creating extra cryptocurrency or or duplicating or or whatever manipulation of it you want to look at because it is also not property and there's no nab violation for you doing so I want to make this very clear. I've talked numerous times that I think cryptocurrency is a good thing and I think it's a great idea and it can be very useful, but there are certain things you have to worry about when it comes to the consistent application of ethics in especially something like this when it comes down to, do I want to put all of my money into something that isn't even really property? This is why so many people are a big fan of like physical currencies and maintaining those things. If you think about it, and this is another hard pill to swallow, the the mythical ones and zeros that is your bank account is also not really your property, right? If someone goes in and changes that number, the only way that you're negatively impacted is if your money that you gave to the bank was like disappeared, right? It would be on the bank at that point. It's not on the person who quote unquote, took or duplicated or whatever that money, because it is just a pattern of ones and zeros in their system. It's not like they have $5,000 in the vault or $50,000 or $100,000 in the vault with a little sticky note that says, this belongs to listener, right? That is literally just in their system as, okay, we received this money and now it's going to go out to somebody else in a loan. So really, someone else has your property. Well, you have this placeholder non-property that the bank promises will give you property in exchange for, right? Which is completely acceptable. It's just like exchanging cryptocurrency for real currency. If someone wants to give their property away for non-property, 
by all means, they can willingly do so as a free agent and they can make a contract to exchange a certain amount at a certain rate at a certain time. There's nothing wrong with that. But I just wanted to make that clear just so that everybody was cognizant of this and, and the ramifications of this bringing this idea to its full fruition. Uh, but really, I think at this point, uh, I've beat the dead horse. I, I was going to do some segments where I went through some of the writing on this. There's a lot of good stuff from the Mises Institute. There's a lot of just great stuff out there in general. Stefan Kinsella has put a ton of work into this idea, has given numerous speeches, done a lot of writing on the topic. I would recommend you looking up any of his stuff about it. It's all very well said, probably better than I could ever put it. But I wanted to get this out there in this format because I think this is a lot of, again, this is another hill that a lot of us just have to get over. Like, trust me, I, I, I think it would be great if there was a consistent ethical definition of property that allowed people to be what one could say as appropriately compensated for their work. So I know, as, as we've kind of already said, there's there's no claim to that work. But, you know, in, in this mythical universe where there is a definition of property that allows you to to have some sort of creative protections over, over your creations, I get it. Trust me, I, I 100% get it. But if we're here for the goal of truth seeking, which is what this whole podcast is about, then we have to take these things and throw them out and replace them with what we realize is now the truth. Or at least I've hopefully convinced you a little bit closer if, if I haven't gotten you all the way. But yeah, I, I think that's all I've got to say on this topic. So I'll go ahead and start wrapping up the show. If you guys enjoyed, make sure that you guys like, subscribe, follow, do whatever you got to do. Go to the Facebook page like that. We have a float. It's Liberty underscore after underscore dark. If you want to follow my personal float account, which I use occasionally, it's a doorbell bombs LLC and at float and you guys can catch me there. I'll post some stuff, updates for the show. If we're going to be going live, we're going to be going live on Float in the future. So hopefully one of these days I'll get an interview with those guys so that we can really talk about the future of their platform. And uh, I think it's got a lot of promise. So I know people are looking at alternative social medias, but I really do think that the people of Float have, have a great platform that if they just built on it and put a little bit more polishing on it, could be something really great for all of us. Um, now that I've done my hashtag not sponsored float pitch, uh, again, make sure you guys follow, like, subscribe, etc., yada, yada. Uh, and I hope you have an amazing Thanksgiving. Tell all of your family I said hi, and I hope you guys are all healthy, safe, and continue to be that way. Take it easy. <laughs>